0: Talk to any property investment expert and you'll probably hear them include the word infrastructure in their list of what they look for in a location. But how do they really know what's going to be built and over what time frame? I've said it to
1: a few people. Aren't we lucky that we spent a lot of money on the NBN? Because that, again, like the light rail example, got a lot of media press for how much money it cost. But actually, it was a fantastic network to have. The, the MBN was able to release latent capacity so we got greater bandwidth and enabled us to work no matter where we were living or operating.
0: Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The, in the au. Infrastructure, things like roads, airports, rail links, energy. These can make a huge difference to property prices, but we're used to waiting years, if not decades, to see action once a political announcement is made. Not so in the world of COVID, where our governments are ramping up their spend in this area. What can we expect in the next year or two? What type of projects gets the green light? We're joined today by David Tucker, the Chief of the Infrastructure Assessment Team for Infrastructure Australia. David's team is responsible for reviewing and updating the assessment framework, which actually sets out the process infrastructure uh, Australia uses to consider initiatives and projects for inclusion on the infrastructure priority list. So there's a whole process here. So we're interested in, you know, I guess an insight into what is this process? How do things get green lighted? And, you know, what sort of timeframes are involved? We're really interested in this conversation, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure.
2: Thanks, David. I mean, I've read the kind of infrastructure reports that kind of get released every year. And I think another one's just got released this week, which is great reading for all our listeners. But to give us a bit of a background, what is Infrastructure Australia and and why does does it exist?
1: Infrastructure Australia was established in 2008. We were the first of our kind. And really, our role is to advise governments. Uh, we advise governments on priorities for investment. So we don't hold the purse strings. We, we don't release funds. It's more about providing advice on where decision makers might direct their funds. And as, as Infrastructure Australia, we are the only body that looks nationally and across all sectors. So we cover transport, energy, water, telecommunications, and social infrastructure. So we do cover the the full remit. Um, Two primary functions, really. The first is around projects, and they are the physical major infrastructure projects that we all know and, and love very well. And And we think about where infrastructure is needed in a physical sense. The second avenue is then around policy and reform. So that is where Mm. we might do things differently and where we might um, target our energies in terms of regulation or um, Mm. new ways of working and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, our our advice is is really um, twofold.
2: So, I mean, I guess an interesting point there is just the difference in governments of state to federal. I mean, how did that sort of play out with your sort of remit and role? So,
1: we're a Commonwealth government agency. So, really, our main audience would be the Commonwealth government. And, and our remit comes in from a, from a legislation point of view where we assess business cases that are seeking more than $250 million of Australian government right. funding. So. By that nature, it's, it's very large infrastructure. But what you've really tried to pivot and think beyond just those major projects and take a more of a regional and a, and a local look as well, so that it is um, very much advice to governments, but the the actors may also be the states and territories, not, not just the Commonwealth.
2: So you could come up with a recommendation for this could be a priority, but that funding could have lots of different avenues and that's not your sort of role to sort of figure out who should fund what. It's more a case of just identifying these sort of key projects?
1: That's correct. So the the infrastructure priority list was just released on Friday. We yep. prepare that list. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a live list. It's updated throughout the year, but we do an annual publication of it. And as I say, that was released on Friday. So perfect timing for this conversation today. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a list that is about increasing profile and drawing attention to where investments are needed. And the Commonwealth government may may choose to, to fully fund some of those aspects, or it mm. may involve a, a partnership with the states and territories, So really, as you say, it's about drawing attention and then over to the decision makers as to where they then target their investments going forward.
0: Has there been a real change in where the priorities are focused in, say, in the last couple of years? Is climate and energy, you know, really factoring into it a lot absolutely it was interesting in your in-
1: introduction when you talked about infrastructure and you said transport and airports and rail and they were always traditionally what we thought about mm. when we talk about infrastructure and interestingly the priority list that we've we've just released i think we've said it for 3 years on the trot now that it's bigger and more diverse than it's ever been before and we've really introduced Not by design, but by need and by infrastructure gaps, though uh, a lot of new um, priorities around water, around telecommunications, around social infrastructure and, of course, energy as well. Um, So transport is still there, but the, the diversity of the list has necessarily grown. Not only responding to to what's happened in the last twelve months, but really what's uh, the shift that's been occurring over the last few years.
2: And I mean, the COVID sort of, you know, I guess it's changed on many levels. Is that sort of, you know, I guess the regional movement, uh, you know, need for infrastructure around sort of even telecommunications and, you know, good better internet in the regions, etc. What are some of the major things that? when you're doing your report this year, you're changing the order of what's important longer term to Australia?
1: Yeah, so we we take a 15-year horizon with our work. So we okay. we don't really look um what's happened in the past. It's all about what's happening now and what's emerging and what's going to happen in the future. And obviously, the pandemic has made us rethink where those investments are needed. And to your point, the, the decentralisation has been A big, a big factor. There's been a. I think the the statistic is something like two hundred percent more people have moved to regional areas from from the cities over the over the eight nine month period. So there is a there is a need to then focus on the regions, but at the same time, there's also been the working from home, and so the working from home has Mm meant that our our local networks need to be. Ready to support people in their um, in their localities. Um, and that's had big implications on waste and utilities and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Our, you know our ability to move around our local areas rather than being on those primary routes going into city centres.
0: The knock-on effect's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, it's it, you know you think working from home. What does that do? But then mm-hmm. obviously it, it puts a load on, um, like you say, waste for argument's sake that you wouldn't have to worry about before because everybody's in the city for most of the day or, or however it works. But you know I'm interested in you saying that it's measured that 200 more movements from from urban to regional areas over the the eight month period. What's the what's the sense in terms of the permanence of that? How do you predict this stuff?
1: Yeah, it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult, as you can quite imagine. I think a lot of people have taken the opportunity to move to, to regional areas and and just see whether that lifestyle change is right for them. Certainly some people I know have, have taken that journey and they'll start to contemplate whether coming back to the city full-time or part-time is, is going to work for them going forward. So really we don't know. Um, We've been, so Infrastructure Australia has been doing some work with the states and and territory transport departments to think about our travel behaviours and whether we can think about more adaptive considerations for our travel patterns. So it's very emerging kind of considerations there, but it will be important to contemplate whether that has a, a lasting impact on our mm. major infrastructure needs but what we do with at, at infrastructure australia is as i said earlier we assess these major projects and consider whether they are good things to do for, for the australian community and we've built a reputation for being robust and evidence based and and i guess bringing the accountability to decision makers as to where they target their investments
2: yeah <laughs> I mean, that was going to be one of my questions is how does the conflict of interest between uh, winning votes, winning seats, winning parliament um, and where you spend money when you're in parliament, you know, in terms of staying in power, how does that all sort of play out versus what makes ideological sense for Australians as a community as a whole?
1: Well, absolutely. So, So Infrastructure Australia is an independent body, but it's something that we have to be very responsible about. We, we, we don't want to be hard-nosed. We've got to recognize that some of this infrastructure is being brought forward because it is stimulating particular regions. It's creating jobs. And we don't really want to stand in the way of that. So our philosophy is about being a bit more pragmatic and saying, OK, this piece of infrastructure is, is, has, a, has a, let's say, a commitment made against it for, for whatever political reason. Mm -hmm. How do we then provide advice so that the the decision makers and the community are fully aware of the full range of benefits that that's really going to to bring about? And, um, yeah, it's about ensuring some accountability there. It's not about saying perhaps whether it should proceed or not. It's just being a bit more wide, wide eyes wide open around what that infrastructure is going to do for us. And really our advice can then be how do we ensure that in proceeding with it we can derive the outcomes that it's seeking to achieve.
0: So what sort of um, projects are being brought forward as a result of COVID? Well, I think there's a whole
1: range, to be honest. There's there's the smaller projects. There's been a lot of conversation around um, maintenance projects and utilising them to, to drive um, the the workforce and to overcome known infrastructure deficits, but then you've also got the, the major large productivity-enhancing projects that, that we all know, the, the airports and the major roadways and, and the others. So there, there really is a range of, of major infrastructure, but these things don't happen quickly um, no, <laughs> they, the, the business cases for them take time to to mm. undertake the modelling and to to undertake the economic analysis associated with um, doing a robust assessment of their worth and their value. There's a lot of work in terms of procurement and risk and and ensuring that the cost estimates are accurate. So, yeah, we we we're not seeing these projects just brought forward without detailed planning. It's it's more a case of what is ready to go and then how do we ensure that they are being um, taken forward in the most pre- uh, most sensible and robust way so that they will have a user benefit in, in the longer term.
2: David, even though there's um, I mean, very low interest rates around the world, government are borrowing and spending money um, like they probably should at the moment, you know, to keep their economies going. Is there really a problem though in terms of actually labour you know, in terms of actually uh, businesses and people to actually do all these infrastructure problems? Like, uh, you know, is it really, if not really a money problem or a desire to do them, it's more a case of have we actually got the ability to do them?
1: It's a very good question. And the other point to add in that is do we actually have the materials to do them as well? So (laughs) we've, we've, Infrastructure Australia has actually been asked by government to do a major piece of work and we call it the market capacity study. And it's exactly that. Um, It's trying to answer that exact question. Um, So we're looking at all of the infrastructure projects around the country that are being brought forward so that we have a more holistic pipeline at a national level to really understand what um, what the big picture is of these major infrastructure projects. And then to look the next layer in terms of What resources do we need? What people and skills and capability do we need to deliver them? What what materials do we need to ensure they can happen? And how do we then get a more smooth pipeline rather than a bumpy pipeline of um, focusing so much attention in one, say, geographical area or one type of project to actually get a, a greater consistency? And of course, with the pandemic, the mi- overseas migration has reduced, and we've always relied on resources from overseas to supplement our local t- workforce to deliver these major projects. Yeah. So how do then we ensure that we can get um, these projects to move forward at a reasonable rate, and we're not burning out our people, and and we're delivering? projects in a safe and and an efficient way so we've been on a journey we started that work in December Um, our first cut of that work is due by the middle of the year and and government have asked us to continue with that on a year-by-year basis so it will be a an emerging piece of work that we're undertaking in collaboration with all the states and territories to ensure that we have a pipeline that is workable.
2: Yeah and I guess it's um you know, there's so many different projects out there, right? And I guess it's figuring out what's more priority, especially if the world's in an infrastructure boom as well. How do you get top talent and then top talent will ask for more money and then the whole project viability changes as well because the costs go up. So it's it's a really sort of challenging time, I reckon, to 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 kind of advise the government at the moment.
1: Yes, it absolutely is. I, I, I think... Um in industry circles it's been well known that we haven't we've had a lack of rail signalling engineers for some time um and obviously with a with a push to to more public transport and and some of the major rail projects around the country we've got to ensure that we've got the capability to actually ensure they can be delivered
0: it's funny you say that it, it, there's the amount of people that say all we need is fast rail you know that's going to solve the, the housing affordability problem in many cases that's i've heard that said um but yes it, it it's it's all well and good to say oh we need fast rail but there's there's so much involved and even just a simple fact you've got one segment of the workforce where there's a, there's a, a lack of supply it's yes. it's Mind-blowing, isn't it, in terms of all the different levers and the, and the elements that you have to take into consideration before green-lighting anything? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, in in Sydney at the moment, we, we're building a, a major airport in Western Sydney. We're building major roads. We're building um, metro systems. And mm. there's a lack of crushed rock to be used as base. Um, so... You know, it's and and I I think there's also a lack of concrete. So these are these are big big issues um, because Mm. there is obviously a drive to push these projects forward and ensure that they, as I say, they're being delivered efficiently and that risks are being managed. But what's the what's the expense of being able to achieve that? So. this piece of work, I think, will prove extremely valuable to assist in governments choosing which projects they bring forward uh, and ensuring that they are, are done in a in a evidence based way to ensure that they can be achieved by the time fri- time frames that's been put upon them.
0: Because we've, of course, you know, hit the front page headlines: uh, the light rail in Sydney, for instance, and the massive cost blowouts, and yeah. Unexpected, you know, um, obstacles and whatever it is that leads to these cost blowouts. So these are sorts of things that you're hoping to um, to head off and be able to predict, so that you can actually prioritise other projects that you be more confident you've hmm. got the resources for. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yes. Uh,
1: the The light rail is a really interesting one. Um, it's not one that Infrastructure Australia looked at in detail. We we were involved very early on. Um, but it was fully funded by by the state, so it didn't yep. pass our books for a a detailed assessment later on. And of course, there was a lot of there was a lot of public debate in the construction of that project and um, the impact that had. But interestingly, as a as a resident and someone who walks across George Street on my way to work it's a fantastic environment now it's it's mm. pedestrian friendly yeah. the the trams when i see them are heavily used and and it's a service that has has changed the way that we move around in sydney and so it's really interesting that there was a lot of debate as part of the construction and the costs associated with it but there hasn't been much said about Actually, the benefits that have been achieved and the value mm. that that has then provided to the city, and and mm. I know that some of the retail pro- um, businesses along George Street have absolutely thrived. So, mm. yes, they did suffer some pain during during the during the construction work, but so they they've had benefits um, in the longer term, and they they will continue to have
0: those. So, how are those benefits measured, though? I mean, that's the individual businesses obviously can report an increased turnover, et cetera, et cetera. But mm. you know, as a, as a, in a macro sense, how are, those, how are they measured?
1: Yeah, so, so this is economics and the, this is part of the work that I've been doing at IA for the last 12 months. Um, we have our assessment framework, which underpins the analysis that we undertake for, for each, each proposal that's brought forward to us. And we use cost benefit analysis. Um, it's a, in all of the states yeah. and territories, use cost benefit analysis. And quite simply as it sounds, it's, a, it's an assessment of the costs versus the benefits to, to see if one out outbalances the other. And there is a lot of literature and, and guidance on how that's done. And, and in a typical sense, if we think about the light rail, um, we look at the, the travel time savings and the amenity benefits. Mm. and Generally, you can um, quantify a lot of things based on people's behaviors and um, willingness to do things. Mm. Um, but what we have been trying to do through, or we are doing through our refresh of the assessment framework, is to think beyond the economics. So we absolutely want to see a, a robust cost benefit analysis being undertaken, but how do we then layer in those other aspects that are are more challenging to put a value on and how do we recognize those as part of, of our evaluations? Um, and so that's really thinking about quality of life. And although travel time savings does have a, a quality of life aspect to it, it's also about how people move and, and how they feel in a, in a, in a particular place. And, um, and then there's obviously the um, the broader um, business benefits and and the the opportunities that are derived at a at a more of a place level that are are, are quite difficult to to cost through um, re- reflective of a of an individual project. So yes, we we've, we've been on this journey to try and be more holistic with our. With our assessments, so that when we mm. provide advice on these major projects, it's not just focusing on a on a cost benefit analysis kind of number, but actually more more broader than that, and and thinking around the quality of life aspects. We've we've introduced sustainability and resilience and more of those strategic level thinking to. To contemplate what these projects are actually going to do for our places and, and for the network or the system in which they're being introduced into.
0: theelephantintheroom.com.au.
2: So, I mean, David, just when you talk about those things, is there one project or a number of projects where you think, you know, this is going to be a huge impact to our quality of life, but also a massive benefit to costs that, you know, you think that, you know, you're excited about, I guess, and things that we need to do? So the priority
1: list that we published on on Friday, that has 180 items on it. Yeah. Um, and they're split into two categories. We have initiatives, which are essentially problems and opportunities. And they're saying, okay, we've there is a gap and something needs to be done here. But we don't yeah. define at that stage what the solution is. We're just saying that there is an opportunity for investment to either to investigate the most appropriate solution to it. Mm. And then the other Category we have on the list is projects, and that's where we've seen a full business case that actually has a solution. So, um, and then the the next layer of categorization is priority and high priority. So by being on the list, they are naturally priorities in themselves. But then we identify those high priority things which have greater scale, greater influence, a um, a greater anticipated impact. So we don't rank the items on the list per se. We, we don't have our high priority <clears throat> projects that we've put in order because everyone is is individual and they yeah. they're in different geographical locations and they're in and they're for different sectors so how could you prioritize say a, a rail line in 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 Victoria versus a road project in in wa it, it's it's not really fair to, to compare them yeah so it's more yeah. about recognizing the full range of benefits that each one has.
0: It's interesting you say that only because I was the very next question I was going to say what's top of the list? <laughs> um, what? which, which, what's the top of the list so you can't tell me that, but rather than a specific project, is there a type that is starting to rise to the top of the list? I don't think so
1: actually. and and I said earlier that the list has become more diverse and mm. the mm. last couple of years we've we've really um, recognised the need for water security and Mm. for telecommunications improvements and that's recognizing not only the the shift that we've seen to to regional areas um, in the last 12 months but also that there was a lack of infrastructure in regional remote areas anyway Mm. and really that was demonstrated to a very um, high profile way through the bushfires where we we obviously had people in in regional areas who were terribly affected, but our ability to communicate with those people through social media and other um, and through mobile networks actually saved lives, and it was recognised that in. In southern New South Wales, where that was occurring, the the networks were were okay. There was improvements needed, but they were okay. But we're not as fortunate as that in other regional locations. And we, as a, you know, as a first world country, need that type of coverage across all of our country to benefit people no matter where they are. And of course, with the pandemic and the ability to travel, it's recognized that the, the telehealth and the, and the teleeducation activity has become uh, a big trend. And the trends that we've seen have probably been, we've probably seen the change in eight or nine months that we would have anticipated over the next eight or 10 years,
0: So that's (laughs) common. It's really
1: brought it's really advanced the the things that we were already anticipating to occur. And so our infrastructure kind of needs to to keep pace with that. And I I've said it to a few people, aren't we lucky that we spent a lot of money on the NBN? Because that was all that again, like like the light rail example got a lot of media press for how much money it cost. But actually it was a fantastic network to have the the mbn was able to release latent capacity so so we got greater bandwidth and enabled us to to work no matter where we were where we were living or operating Mm. and so yeah i think we've definitely seen a, a big change in the types of of infrastructure that's on our list away from those traditional road and um, transport-related projects to to digital, um, to water, um, and to and to some of the social infrastructure as well.
0: Now, water is obviously a big issue, and I, I don't know. Even I, was, I think it was a Four Corners um, show on the bushfires down the south coast, where you know people turn on the tap and there's no water. You know, and they're mm. trying to fight a fire, and it was also at the tail end of a, a drought, also. And I wonder, you know, travelling around the countryside as I I like to do on the odd occasion, seeing the lovely lush green hills that we have now because of El Nino, that um, I wonder what's going to happen, you know, with this migration to the regions. Um, All these people forget there's a drought or probably (laughs) no concept there's been a drought or what it looks like in the drought or having a water shortage in the drought. You know, so I would imagine that. That is something that sort of, um, you know, there's a real spotlight on water security. For, that's just one reason. I mean, obviously, there's lots of other reasons. Um, so what, what can be done around that? Because dams are very unpopular, aren't they? <coughs> they, they are. Um,
1: but absolutely, more needs to be done. And I think we've, we've got the challenge of potable water, which is what we as the community drink. Every day, and then we have the non-potable water, which is what um, uh, our agricultural producers use for for obviously growing crops. And, there, and there's a balance between how that how that water is um, used for different purposes. Absolutely, more needs to be done. Um, we we we've seen this before, where we go through a drought, and then we get the El Nino, and everything's right again, and and all those investments come off. Um, come off the table again. But it's about sources of water and how that's how how water is provided. But then there's also the transmission of water and ensuring that um, if a if a local area has a as a shortage, that they're not just relying on one form of water being provided, but there's there's a backup system. And so it's having mm. that resilience uh, in the network to ensure that the water is provided. And so, the, again, the priority list touches on water in, in many different areas. Um, the, in Perth and, and, and the southwest coast of WA, we we broadened um, an existing initiative for greater water security in that area. Um we've we've got a, a new listing for Southeast Melbourne for the treatment of recycled water. So there is a lot of evidence of water just being released into the ocean. And, mm. and so there's a great opportunity there where water can be used for um, planing fields and, and other irrigation opportunities rather than uh, and so that the the potable water that our communities need is is um is for Absolutely. the communities and it's not being yeah. used in other ways. So so how do we recycle water in a better way to get better mm. outcomes? Um, we've also listed two new initiatives. Oh, in fact, there's quite a few new water initiatives. There was two in South Australia, one around the Barossa region, um, for the water supply. Um, for agricultural use in that region, and then further north in, in northern South Australia for um, water security for the, for the industry in that location. So we, the way that we, we use the, the priority list is we draw attention at a national level to big things, and then mm. we find that the states and territories then come to us with region-specific responses that um, take that national problem at a more local level um, to actually then drive the investment in those areas. And we we saw a a fantastic example of that a couple of years ago where we listed a national road safety problem and the states and territories have now come forward with targeted solutions to, Mm. to regional roads in response to that. And so I think with the water um, story, we'll, we'll see that kind of um, action occurring over the coming years as well.
2: So, I mean, the other, I guess, key resource when you're in a house is your electricity. Um, you know, how's that sort of transition going to play out? Are we got a massive glaring hole in terms of if we go all to solar or Um, you know we all want more renewable and how does that sort of play out Um, and are we sort of ready for that sort of transition you know electric cars and all these sort of things
1: yeah I again we we've we've taken a not a a broad view but we've taken the view that there is multiple requirements here there is there's absolutely a role for renewables um, but there's also a a role for more um, dispatchable energy sources that um, provide that that underpinning of constant yeah. energy as as we need them, um, and again, it 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 can vary between um, different geographies as well. So yeah, um, yeah, I think again. So we released a report in December on on the impacts of the COVID pandemic, and it had some. Fantastic um, statistics in there as to how things have changed, and one of them that came up was um, there was an increase of one hundred and sixty-five thousand solar panels of a small scale. So generally, that's your your homes. People have yeah. really embraced the the solar um, opportunity for their homes. And mm. I think that was just in the first half of 2020. It was just the first six months. So yeah. there, there's definitely been a an uptake at a by by households, but there is also need to do more by governments, both in terms of our sources of energy, our types of energy, and the and the distribution of energy to ensure that we do have that um, resilience and. Um, capacity in, in our networks to support to support demand. And and obviously when when we have a heat wave and, and there's an overload of on the network, yeah. that's that's the type of thing that we want to be able to protect against.
0: It must be quite frustrating for you that this is such a political issue. I mean, I know that you're independent, <laughs> as in infrastructure yeah. Australia is independent. But I mean, this is a highly political issue, and 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 the inactivity from our current government in terms of having a policy on these, you know what I mean, and a real plan, it must drive you nuts. Um,
1: not really. Um, <laughs> are we,
0: we, we are independent,
1: so that gives us the scope to be to continue to voice, yeah, and to draw attention. And to raise profile of big matters that need to be resolved. So we published an infrastructure audit in 2019 and that was a national cross-sectoral view of our infrastructure needs and gaps across the country. In response to that, we are currently developing an infrastructure plan or a strategy that responds to many of the problems and opportunities that were were identified in the audit and so that that plan is is being finalized for release middle of the year and that really is going to target the reforms and actions that we think government need to take so all we can continue to do is use data use the evidence that's presented to us to challenge mm. thinking and to continue to push the debate on, on what is needed to occur going forward. So it's not about blame. It's not about saying what hasn't been done. It's more about taking that forward-looking view on these. this is what Australia needs going forward. And, you know, I think we found that when we did our last plan in in 2016, a lot of the recommendations we put forward in that have been taken forward, and have been and have been completed, and so we, we would then hope that this next plan, our, uh, our goal is to provide recommendations that are practical and achievable, and and so we would expect that many of those can then be addressed, following the release of this next plan as well.
0: So, what are you most excited about in terms of you know what what could come or what you've been working on? Oh, <laughs> um, that's a
1: that's a great question. Um, I think I mentioned about the market capacity work. I think from our engagements with our, our states and territories, that's going to prove extremely valuable in terms yeah. of thinking about how we can get a more stable and an efficient pipeline for the delivery of these major projects. So, so that will be a, a massive piece of work for us. Um, one piece of work I haven't spoken about is our work on regional gaps. So mm. we, we have our, our priority list, which um, is termed nationally significant infrastructure needs. And so we, we have a threshold in that to recognize those big things that are most needed for, for the country. But we don't want to undermine the importance of local and regional needs as well, and so we've commenced a piece of work around the that specifically looks at the needs of our of our regions and and our Light local up. communities, so that we can draw attention to that as well. Um, and as I say, we the the priority list, the national priority list, does have a lot of regional. Um, focused elements to it. Mm. This work will take that to the next layer, and again look at the the data that's occurring across the country to to then identify a pipeline for for regional development as well. So I I think that's very that's very interesting and exciting piece of work. Um, for me personally, I mentioned about the refresh of the assessment framework and that's really going to change the way that we undertake our evaluations and and take that more holistic view so that you know as alongside just an economic lens we we're, we're taking a more of a strategic and and social lens as well so that we see these projects in a in a more holistic way um and we've we've also doing quite a bit of work in in the sustainability and resilience space and mm. thinking about how our infrastructure is not only responding to an immediate challenge but having a long-term benefit for our communities and that that infrastructure is adaptable and resilient to a range of of future circumstances so i think that that for me is some some areas that I'm looking forward to certainly in the in the next six months or so.
0: It sounds very exciting. But you, you mentioned the word social infrastructure a few times. What exactly is that?
1: That can vary. So it can be hospitals, schools. It could be the um, justice system, um, social housing, um, even even our our green spaces and our and our um, so parks and. Um, Um, And recreation spaces and even our blue infrastructure, so our our waterways as well.
2: Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, what's really interesting around the work you do is it's just highlighting what could happen and what should happen and what should be the priorities for the government longer term. And a lot of people who haven't really even looked at your list before had no idea the impo- that so many different projects and so many different categories are needed um, and it's, some are actually going to happen, are likely to happen, and they're going to completely change the livability of some places versus others, um, access um, to the city, et cetera. So I think for all our listeners that are looking at the sort of property market, it's a really good sort of report to sort of be tracking and constantly be watching what's happening longer term because they could ultimately impact the decisions you make from an investment point of view or from a living point of view. So I think that's probably the the real takeaway. I'd really encourage our listeners to sort of really kind of delve deep and keep tracking this because I think it's really interesting to to know what may come.
0: We'll put the link in the show notes too so people can access that report. Well, I was going to say,
1: so we published the report, but actually – what would be most valuable to your listeners is our online portal. Yeah. So go on to the Infrastructure Australia website and our priority list is an interactive tool. So you yeah. can filter based on the sector you're interested in or you could zoom in on the particular geography that you're interested in and see the range of, the range of proposals that have been put forward that it would affect um, your area of interest. Yeah. And, I, and that has... That has garnered a lot of of interest, and and that's a tool that we will continue to that will continue to uh, keep updated, and and the the priority list, as I say, it was published last week, but it's continually updated throughout the year. So mm. we accept proposals at any time, we assess them, and if they are deemed appropriate for inclusion, then the priority list gets updated. So it's uh, yeah. it is absolutely a worthwhile resource to look at what those what we consider to be the the investments that are most needed for australia
0: fantastic well we'll definitely put a link for that in the show notes then as well do you have also can you send us a copy of that december report that you mentioned earlier
2: yes i can yes
0: yeah and we'll pop that in too
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's a really uh, deep conversation. I think uh, if if clients haven't or, you know, listeners haven't started to think about the longer term impacts of different infrastructure, um, you know, there could be a big hole, you know, that could be a problem that, you know, could always hold back your sort of investment because no money is going to get fixed that problem, even though you think it should. So I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you very much. I've really appreciated it. It's been a good chat.
2: David didn't want to do a Dumbo for us, but Veronica, have you got one for us? Oh, I
0: do. I actually have got. Uh, I went through a house in. I won't give the the suburb away because it's probably going to come on the market soon. And so, um, but it was in the inner city, okay. And I looked at this uh, terrace house with an agent. And he said to me, "Oh, it's just been renovated. You know, it's it's lovely. It's great. It's in a really good street, etc., etc., etc." I was so excited. <laughs> going to look at this off market for my client I really thought it was the one right (laughs) I got there and I walked inside and I was just so bitterly disappointed I wanted to cry and they they these people had bought this property It um, needed a full renovation and what they'd done was so cheap and awful. I, I just was like, what the hell? It was just awful. The cheap kitchen, cheap bathrooms, cheap joinery, everything cheap, cheap. And I thought, miss the market. This thing will, will struggle to sell. But that wasn't the full Dumbo of it. The full Dumbo, as I discovered was when they bought it, it had been um, converted into a series. Uh, some of these big old terraces in inner city suburbs um, were sort of like boarding houses. You know, they, they were co- um, converted into flats. So I think there was three or four flats in this apart, in this some house. And so the people that bought it thought that they would just be able to just renovate these flats and continue renting them out as a high-yielding investment <laughs> when they got to council. And they did no due diligence. They bought this. And didn't check any of this stuff out, right? So then they've discovered that not only will council not allow them to do that, council said no, it has to go back to one residence. But double whammy, it's actually heritage so they had all this massive additional cost that they had not factored in because they had to spend a lot of money restoring heritage features that they had not budgeted for. Yeah, And so when it came down to actually doing the renovation, they're A, renovating and creating one home that they didn't factor into their their uh, their sums and their expectations. So they're not going to become slumlords like they thought they were going to be. Uh, sure, yeah, slumlords. Um. <laughs> and secondly, and secondly, that they had absolutely no concept of what it takes to restore a heritage building, and so the cost, every basically their entire renovating cost was evaporated in those heritage restoration um, mm. elements of the project, and so when it came down to actually finishing it off so it's livable they didn't have a lot of money left over and they did the cheapest most revolting renovation <laughs> that thing won't sell it'll struggle yeah um, it might it'll probably struggle to rent even because it's just not the right product for that market and yeah. and I just couldn't get over I scratched my head this is you know they bought a, they paid a few million dollars for this when they bought it this isn't not a cheap property and I just scratch my head to think that somebody's got that amount of money to invest in a property, and they haven't got the smarts or the common sense to do their property diligence.
2: It's a really interesting one, actually, because we're starting to see—you know—there's nothing on the market, uh, and clients are desperate. And so, when they're desperate, they buy, you know, get, you know, buy different properties than they would have likely would want mm-hmm. to buy, uh, and that's unrenovated, let's say. Yep. Um, And they're expensive properties that are unrenovated and they haven't got much cash. They're not enough cash to do a proper renovation that these type of properties need Mm. to satisfy. They might be happy with it. They might, well, we're happy to live in a cheap, you know, Bunnings kitchen um, and a cheap, uh, you know, bathroom. But ultimately at some point you decide to sell that property Um, or you might have to sell for some reason. And so, you know, that's definitely happening now where, uh, people who can't afford to do a proper renovation are buying properties that need a proper renovation. And um, what's going to happen there is you're just going to butcher your good asset. And so, um, yeah, you've got to be very careful with that at the moment, I think, as well.
0: Oh, totally. And, in fact, we often see in in these sort of hot market conditions that the unrenovated property sells for a disproportionate amount yeah. compared to the renovated property. And if you add the two together, you uh, most people yeah. I think are up overpaying for the unrenovated property and then, of course, you devalue it if you don't renovate it to the standard yeah. that it needs to be for that area. So it is a real trap. There's no doubt about it. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's Elephant Rider training is?
2: So I think that, you know, someone listening to this podcast has already, you know you know, preaching to the converted, I guess. You know, they're investing in their knowledge hopefully by listening to us. But I think also looking for other sources that are reliable and that are actually increasing your knowledge and are getting updated Um, and you can just basically track. You don't need to spend weeks and weeks and every day looking at things. But, you know, infrastructure is one of those things that I do think has a huge impact on the livability and how cities will change and potentially prices. You know, if a new train goes in, um, new airport, um, you know, major changes to technology and communications or water, et cetera. I think infrastructure shows is, is one of those things that you should track, such as developments or there's a whole list of things, demo, uh, demographics, which we've done on here a lot as well, and migration and, um, you know, what the RBA is doing, et cetera. So, yeah, find good sources of infrastructure and infrastructure Australia is one of those um, to really track. And so you're staying ahead of things and you're constantly questioning your confirmation bias, you know, is what you thought... The world was like when you first purchased that property still the world that is you know 10 years later right and is your property still going to perform well in the world coming and um, you've got to always be questioning things because the easy thing is just to buy something and hold it Um, but if the world does change maybe your decision should change maybe you should say well Yes, i done well out of that property for those reasons. But if I did sell, yes, I pay capital gains tax and selling costs, but I could get a much better property that will benefit, you know, from the way that things are moving. So um, nothing set in stone is a good philosophy for life.
0: Very true. One thing I would just add in when you're looking at infrastructure as well, there's a difference between greenfields and brownfields. And greenfields is when it's they've said, yes, it's going to go ahead, but there's no actual ground being broken yet. Uh, as opposed to brownfields where it's actually all commenced and actually is going to go ahead because you know what elections come and go um, you know it, it is political this whole infrastructure thing so therefore you've got to be pretty certain that not only is it actually going to come about but is it going to come about in a reasonable time frame. Please join us for our next episode. We have an entire episode dedicated to a listener question. It's one question with six parts, all about how to go about buying your first investment property. Really fascinating stuff, I have to say, because Chris and I really bring both of our skills to the table, a lot about the structuring and the borrowing and the lending and how much equity and all that sort of side, the mechanics of it. And then obviously, we talk a lot about diversification and location and property.
2: wellfoot.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to
0: see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.